Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the book of Romans, Pastor Murphy showed us four unique characteristics that Paul shows us surrounding the doctrine of salvation. Today we'll continue to study the fourth feature and see how salvation honors and establishes the law. All right, turn with me, please, to the book of Romans. And I want to look at the last verse in chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. But so that we would get the general context of the chapter and the passage, uh, I'd like us to read from verse number 23, and then we come to our text in verse 31. And Paul says to the Roman believers, he says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then he said, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and justifier of them that believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law or works? Nay, but by the principle of the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only, or is he also of the Gentiles? Yea, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. And then Paul's text. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. So this morning, I want to look at several ways. Eight of them, in fact, of how God's way of salvation through faith in Christ's propitiatory sacrifice, how that way of salvation honors the law and establishes the law and doesn't make it void of none effect. That's what I want to show you this morning, how it does that. See? Because that's what Paul is saying. And that's the interpretation that is proper to this passage. In number one, Theologians uh, have a term that is used in relation to Christ to explain his relationship to the law and how he honored the law. And the first thing I'd like to point out to you here is that what, what is being suggested here that Christ and the cross, how it honors and establishes the law. And the first thing, thing I'd like to point out to you is theologians say that Christ honored the law by what is called his active obedience to the law. Now you remember, our Lord made a statement in the book of Matthew. And uh, he said to the people in Matthew chapter number 5, he said to them, look, think not that I'm come to destroy the law, but I'm come to do what? To fulfill it. He said, not one jot, not one thistle shall pass away until all the law be fulfilled. So the way that Christ in the cross honors the law is that when he came, 
He came and he lived under the law and he practiced what is called active obedience to the law. In the book of Galatians chapter 4, Paul reminds us that when Christ came into this world and was incarnated, he was made as a man under what? Under the law. So what Christ did when he became a man is that he deliberately placed himself under the law as a man. And through his impeccable obedience to the law. Now remember that he was free from all sin, from all pollution, from all defilement. But yet he came and he lived under the law and he made sure he fulfilled every single requirement of the law. And in that way, Christ and the cross honored the law and he established the law because he obeyed it fully and completely and exhaustively. He obeyed it perfectly. Remember when our Lord came to John the Baptist to be baptized? Remember the moral repulsion that John the Baptist felt when he saw Christ coming to him? And you remember that he said to, he said to the Lord, Comest thou to me? You, you can be baptized by me. And he said, I need you to baptize me. Because John knew one thing. Here was the sinless son of God. And he is coming to a sinful man to be baptized. And what John's baptism is called the baptism of repentance. He had no sin to repent of. So John is totally repulsed. I can't believe this. You remember what Jesus told him? Suffer it to be thus so. For we must now fulfill all righteousness. Because John was a prophet calling the people back to God. Saying to the people that they need to repent. And he was endorsing John's ministry. By going through the act of baptism. He didn't have to be baptized. Because there was no sin. There was nothing to repent of. And John is morally repulsed. You come to me. And Jesus said yeah let it be this way. Because I want to prove to the world. And to the people around you. That I endorse your ministry. Your preach of righteousness. And I support that. You remember also the astounding question that our Lord asked the people in his day that completely baffled those that were his critics. You remember what he said to them? He said these words, which of you convict of me of sin? That's an incredible expression to, to ask. For example, that is either conceited megalomania, a man in his insanity to ask people, what sin have I ever committed? Or this is indeed the sober words of the Son of God who is conscious that there's no sin inside or outside of him. And so he asked them, what sin? And not a single one could bring a charge against him. You know why? His active obedience to the law. He honored the law. He established the law. And he lived according to the law. And thank God he did. Because he did what you could not do and I could never have done. He lived out the law to fulfill the law, to honor God's law. That's how he established it. His active obedience to the law. There's another interesting statement. I was made by the Lord. And coming from the lips of any other man, it was the worst form of spiritual braggadocio. But remember what he said? 
He said these words. The prince of this world cometh and findeth nothing in me. Referring to Satan. Now it is possible for me to say that none of you can find a fault in me. Because you don't see me day in and day in. You don't. But to say that the, the prince of darkness, the enemy, has nothing to know about me with all the demonic powers. Everywhere he has some contact that can relay information. And Jesus said, look, he come off and he finds nothing in me. The point that he's making here is a sinless life. And not even Satan could bring an accusation against him. Because of his active obedience to scripture. And by the way, the only way they could ever find a fault again is when they concocted a false story and invented a falsehood. And of course, he was crucified because of uh, injustice, etc. But I'm saying to you that Christ honored the law. He established the law by his active obedience to the law. He never sinned. He never disobeyed the law. He honored it perfectly and completely. And he's the only one who could ever have done that. And had he not done that, he could not have been the savior of you or of me. So he established the law. His way, God's way of salvation established the law because the one that brings salvation is Christ. And he honored the law by his perfect obedience to the law. He obeyed it for you and for me. We couldn't do it. And that's one of the glorious truths of our salvation that makes it so unique in comparison to that that's offered by any other person. He did it for us. And so he honored the law. The second way in which uh, our Lord honored the law is not only by his active obedience. But theologians said he honored the law also by what is called his passive obedience. By this we mean that Christ not only lived and obeyed the law. But Christ was willing to voluntarily vicariously suffer and die on the cross for the sins of man. So that God can forgive us from the wrath of the law. See, the law not only demanded our obedience. The law also demanded that the person who did not obey suffer the penalty of the just wrath of God. So the law is not just about obeying the law, but it said if you did not obey the law, you come under divine wrath. The law demanded, it's claimed that there be a penalty administered to the one who offends the law and does not obey the law. And the truth about the scripture is that in God's way of salvation, Jesus Christ took our punishment on himself and under the law because what the law demanded, he took upon himself. By his passive obedience. And what I mean by that, he voluntarily did it. Now here's God's impeccable sinless son who allows man to so brutalize him. He makes his soul an offering for sin and he's led as a lamb to the slaughter, the Bible says in the book of uh, um, Isaiah chapter 53. There is no resistance. There is no fight. There's no defense. There's no murmuring. There's no complaining. There's no running away from what is coming to him. He's simply as a lamb without a, without a murmur. He takes it all upon himself. And you know why he does it? He does it to honor God's law because God's law said that the offender should be punished. And by taking our sin, he takes the place of the sinner and he's punished on the behalf of the sinner. So he honors the law. He establishes the law. 
He doesn't destroy the law. Not only by his active obedience, but by his passive obedience as well. I want to say in the third case, the cross and Christ established the law in that it asserts clearly the cross. What the law intended to teach us from the very beginning. And that is this. That God is holy. The fundamental purpose of the law. Is to establish in the minds of men. That you are dealing with a God that is absolutely holy. After God had given the law. He summed it up in the most brilliant words. He said. Be ye holy as I am holy. The law said that God was holy. And can you tell me or show me more plainly and more cleanly, clearly if there's any place in human history where the holiness of God was more displayed than at the cross? Yes, we say love, but the cross says holiness. See? You know how it does that? It says to the world that God is so holy that if he has to punish his own son for sin, he will punish his own sin. Not even his holiness could prevent him from punishing his son. And when you look at the cross, that sense of the cross where Christ suffers demonstrating the holiness of God who is taking our penalty. God is declaring to the whole world, look at my son. If I am willing to do this to my son, do you ever think you're the sinner can escape? So when Christ died on the cross, he established the fact that the law is holy. That it manifested the holiness of God. And I have said this several times in preaching on this this series on the book of Romans. That any time you look at the cross and all you see is love, you have not understood the cross. I repeat. I repeat, anytime you look at the cross and all you see is love, you have not understood the cross. See? The primary purpose of the cross is to establish the fact of God's holiness. See? That's the primary thing. You know, is it, is it not amazing in the Bible that God let us know he's holy before he knows to be in love? Read the book of, that's why we got the book of uh, the Old Testament first. You read the Old Testament and you see very God is thundering His holiness. You come to the New Testament and you see God is showing His love. And it's important He didn't show us His love before His holiness. Because we'll take His holiness for granted. See? But everything about the cross is first about God and then about you. You see, you've made yourself too important. People give me the idea that um, they're doing God a favor when they get saved. No, I'm serious. People give you that impression. You know, I'm doing God a favor. God needs me. Sir, could I tell you that God is self-sufficient in his holiness, in his triune God. He don't need you. He don't need me. So if you think that you're so important, see, that God needs you and you can hold on in God, you know, you are sadly mistaken, sir. The cross of Christ and Christ himself not only by his active obedience and his passive obedience, but in the third case, 
the cross of Christ and the death on the cross shows us clearly that it honors the law by proving to us in the death of God's son that his holiness demanded the death of his son. And the law indeed is to emphasize God's holiness. That's how it establishes the law. I hope you see why it's so important for us to understand a passage like this. Because the moment you relate this passage to your life, that you are empowered at salvation to now keep the law, you miss the whole purpose of the, what Paul is saying. Paul is not discussing sanctification, how you live. The whole theme of chapter 3 is justification. How does justification establish the law? How does it prove the law? How does it honor the law? It has nothing to do with how you live. But we get afraid of the law because we're afraid we're going to put people back under the law. And so there's a tendency sometimes to believe that there's something wrong about the law. There's something unholy about the law. Fourthly, the fourth way in which Christ and the cross established and confirmed the law is that the law in his death, uh, it proves very clearly what the law has always thought, that God's wrath would be poured out against sin. The law tells us that God hates sin, that God abhors sin. That arouses in God a, a great uh, wrath against man and sin. The law says that for sure sin will be punished. And that God will not spare the guilty. Do you remember when the law was being given in the book of Deuteronomy? They put them on two mountains. One on Mount Garrison and Mount, one on what was the other one? Mount Ebal. You remember what, what uh, Moses said? On one mountain, Mount Garrison, he said, what? There is blessings, life and blessings. I give you life and blessings, Mount Garrison. On the other one, he said, what? I bring you curse and what? And death. And what's the key word there? If you obey the law, I give you life and blessings. If you disobey the law, I bring you cursings and death. That's the law. There's no in between. It demands strict obedience for blessing and life. It demands death and cursing for disobedience. Wrath for disobedience. And I want to say to you this morning, there's no greater event in human history that shows God's detestation for sin and his determination to pour his wrath on sin than when you look at Calvary and you see Christ hanging in all his nakedness and all his shame and you hear him say, uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There's no clearer vindication of God's abhorrence of sin and his determination to punish sin, his wrath, than Calvary. So the cross of Christ vindicates the teaching of the, uh, about the law. The law taught very clearly blessings and life for obedience, death and wrath for disobedience. And so we find that that's exactly what happened. When Christ was crucified. So he honored the law in that respect. He established the law. His death established the law in that respect. And number five. A fifth way in which Christ 
and the cross establish a law is that in, in, in the cross of Christ uh, shows very clearly what the law thought about human sin. And let me explain what I mean by that. The, the law makes it clear that man had fallen and the law was necessary to put restraints on man. The law was given to control man's propensity to sin. The law said that man is not good, that man is bad. The law said that from the very inner being, man is fallen. So the law tried to regulate and restrain man's sin. As a matter of fact, in this chapter alone, the Apostle Paul shows you the relationship between the law and human sin. You remember, I pointed out to you as we were teaching this passage, that he links sin, uh, the law, to three different parts. Three different things in relation to sin. Let me mention, first of all, Paul said in chapter uh, 3 verse 20b, that the law shows our sin. By the law, it's a knowledge of sin. The law awakens in us, it augments sin, it magnifies sin. It lets us know what sin is. That sin is not just an act. It's a desire. Which comes to my mind in Romans chapter 7. Paul said there was a time when he was without the law. And Paul felt good about himself. But then Paul said, the, uh, the law slew me. And then Paul, how did the law slew him? Paul said, I came to that pattern where said, thou shalt not covet. And then Paul said, oh me. In all the external things Paul was doing, he could say, I, I was keeping the law. But when the law said, don't covet, it entered a dimension, the inner life of the man now. And you realize you can be outwardly right, but inwardly wrong. And Paul said, the law killed me. It brought me to a sense that I'm really, really sinful. Yeah, you can do all the good outward acts, say the right things, the evangelical cliches and... Uh, you know, put on the paraphernalia of a Christian and go about as though you're a Christian, but what's on the inside? See, what's your, what's your desires? What's your thinking? What's your motive? See, the law is that deep. See? And that's why Paul says, the law shows you sin, but the law is not. And then the second thing that Paul said in this chapter was, in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 19, the law stirs up guilt that all the world may become guilty before God. It awakens you to the sense that you're guilty. It probes the conscience. And by the way, I have said this before. That is why the law still has its proper use in this dispensation of age. We must still use the law and preach the law. And let me explain what I mean by that. We must still tell men, you should love the Lord thy God with all their heart. They should not lose the Lord's name in vain. They should honor your parents. We don't shell those things. See? And by the way, you'd be surprised that some people get convicted of sin for different reasons. A man who mistreats his parents and cusses his parents and all, he comes up to honor your parents and you deal with that. He comes under tremendous conviction. So the idea that the law has no purpose today, no use today, we must not, we must just close shop on the law and just put, shelve it away. Mistaken. As a matter of fact, I would, this is why our generation is the way that it is today. It has no consciousness of sin because there's no law about what sin is any longer. See? When I was in school, you all know this story. I had to repeat the Ten Commandments. I had to repeat the I had, I had uh, somebody preaching me every day. This is a government school, by the way. Every day we had devotions. 
Every day we sang songs in the uh, the English book. We call it hymn of praise. Oh, hymn of praise. Uh, it's a book that's used in school. A little blue book. As a matter of fact, I've heard um, the pianist playing sometimes some songs. I remember when I was a boy in school. I've, I've said to more than once to the people who play the piano. You know what? I remember that school. That song when I was in school. That's all gone. So we now have a, a children in school who know have a, a moral conscience any longer. They can do anything. They can take their cell phone that was given their, 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 their iPad that was given to them for education, and they're not watching any education. It's pornography, and it doesn't bother them. They don't have a conscience anymore. And we've come to that stage because. We have done away with the law. But that all the world may become guilty. God gave the law. So how is the world going to feel guilt if we abandon the law? I don't even know if we understand what we've done. I would challenge those of you who love to read. Study any of the great preachers of the past. Look into their archives. And you will see, without exception, they all preached on the law and did a series on the law. See? Because they knew they had to wake the conscience of the nation. But it's all gone now. And all we preach is love. 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 And they tell them, the more we preach of love, the less people know about love. The Apostle Paul is making it very, very clear, very, very clear that Christ honored the law by proving what the law has always proven, that men are fallen sinners before God. See? The third thing that Paul tells us about the law, not only shows us our sin and shows us our guilt, but Paul says that every mouth may be shot, that it may silence the empty pride of fallen man who pats himself on the back and said, I'm a goody, goody, goody. The law says, shut your mouth up. You're much more evil than you think. See? It shuts the mouth. Silence the man. Now I ask you a question here this morning. Once again, is there any other event in human history that show the vicious, guilty, Brutality of man than the bloody death of the innocent son of God. There, the holiest being of the universe hangs on the cross. And he is mocked and laughed at and ridiculed. And they walk by and say nothing. Is there any way to show man's greatest sinfulness than to see him hanging on the cross? And who put him there? We put him there. See? We nailed him there. See? Was there any other way to augment our sin to show our guilt? Don't say if you were there, you would do nothing. Oh, he would not have happened if I was there. Are you so sure? Why, sir, you don't even say your testimony in your workplace because of what people might say about you. Have you not betrayed him before? Are you not betraying him now? So don't tell me if you were there, it would be different. We're all sinners. And the cross says, here is the perfect display of human sinfulness. The crucifixion of the sinless son of God and the bloody way in which it was done. 
They came out with a movie called The Passion. You saw it? Uh, I, I, you know, sometimes people say they went to exaggeration. There is no exaggeration there, my dear friend. As a matter of fact, I would suggest you it's even worse. Those are actors. See? Those are actors. See? But Christ and the cross established a law because his death shows clearly what the law taught. That man is a rotten, guilty felon who hates God and loves sin. See? The cross says that. So this idea that is often bandied around by these philosophers about human goodness. They, they tell us that man was born with a blank sheet. He's born with a blank sheet. Innocent. And what happens if society corrupts him? I want to suggest to you that's not Bible. From the time you were born, you're born going astray. You're born doing wrong. You're born wanting wrong. You're born loving wrong. You're born with a sinful nature. And the law says that, and Christ's death on the cross confirms that. Now, the sixth way in which the, uh, Christ's death on the cross honors the law and uh, establishes the law. I want to say in the sixth case that his cross establishes the law because it fulfills the ultimate purpose for which the law pointed. And let me explain what I mean by that. Now, if you look at verse number 20 of chapter 3, Paul says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be what? Justified. So the law can't save. The law was not designed to save. But what the law was designed to do, the law was to show man's sinfulness, his helplessness, his hopeless condition, that he is hellbound. And then the law, after has shown that man, the law says, don't look to me, look to the cross. That's what the law was about. You remember what Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24 and 25? Paul says the law was our schoolmaster. To do what? To bring us to Christ. See? That's what the law was designed to. See? And at the cross, at the cross, that cross fulfilled the ultimate purpose of the law. Because that law was pointed to the cross. And when he hung on the cross, he was saying in his death, I established the law because the law pointed to me. See? See? I want to say to you, my dear friend, that just like a school teacher takes a child and lead him in a course, lead him to a destination, whether that be results or tests, the law was like that for us. The intention of the law ultimately is to bring you under the law with a view not that you embrace the law and start worshiping the law and living under the law, but it's designed to show you that what I require of you, you just don't have the ability to meet. I want to show you your inability, your incapacity. That's why it was given to show you your incapacity. You, do, you can't do it. See? But I don't even want to do that. I'm doing that to show you ultimately the one who can do it for you. And that is Christ. See? With a schoolmaster. And that's how the cross established the law. See? By fulfilling the ultimate aim that the law served, which was to point to Christ ultimately. And then number seven, quickly. 
the cross and Christ established the law by fulfilling what I call the Old Testament types and foreshadowings in the Old Testament law. You know, you remember that there's a great deal of instruction in the Old Testament about sacrifices, about offerings, about blood. You remember that Aaron was told and all of his sons were told, you're the priest, but I've given the blood upon the altar to make an atonement for the soul. All in the Old Testament, every time a, a lamb was killed, an ox was killed, a, a goat was killed, a sacrifice was made, the blood was shed. And you remember after the blood was shed, it was put on the altar. All of that was pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God. See? And think about this. In the Old Testament, there was a sacrifice. Christ was that sacrifice. In the Old Testament, blood was shed. Christ's blood was shed. In the Old Testament, there was a mercy seat, but he's the propitiation, he's the mercy seat. So he's not only the sacrifice, the blood, and the mercy seat, but he's also the priest. Because in the book of Hebrews, they tell he took the blood of the eternal and took it into the Holy of Holies in the heavenly places. So all you find in the Old Testament, the sacrifice, the priest, and the blood, all of it, pointed ultimately to the one on the cross. And he fulfilled all those requirements in terms of the foreshadowment and types in the Old Testament. He brought them to completion in himself. They all pointed to him. And his death on the cross clearly fulfilled all the types and the foreshadowing. If I had time this morning, I could go through so many types in the Old Testament that all pointed to him. As Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted. He's the serpent, as it were. In the old. He's the one that when you look, you live. By faith. He's the manna. He said in the manna, come down from heaven. If a man eats, he shall never die. All of that pointed to him. He's the peace offering. He's the, he's the, um, the peace offering. He's the sin offering. He's the trespass offering. He's the burnt offering. All of those sacrifices pointed to him. And so when Paul is talking about Christ and the cross establishing the law, please understand is referring to his way of justification. It has nothing to do with sanctification. It has nothing to do with making you empowering to keep the law. That has nothing to do in this chapter. Everything in this chapter is about justification. But how does he establish it? And I hope you can see uh, those seven ways in which it, yeah, he established it. The, the last thing I would like to um, say this morning in connection with this matter of how Christ's death uh, Christ and his death on the cross established the law, is that there is one divine principle given in the Old Testament about sin that the cross establishes and vindicates and honors. You remember what was said uh, in the book of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22? Without the shedding of what? Blood. There is no remission for sins. And I want to say to you, on the cross, Christ established that principle and honored the law because he not only died, he bled. Now here's my problem with some of the theologians. Now John MacArthur has written a book called the book of Hebrews. And if you get it, you read it, you'll find there was a tremendous controversy that he created because John MacArthur did not emphasize the blood, he emphasized the death of Christ. And his point is that the, the blood symbolizes death. So what the Bible is talking about is about his death. And theologians beg MacArthur, 
brother, don't play with the blood. The Bible emphasizes it's not just that he died. If he had died and not shed his blood, he could not have saved us. I repeat, he could not have saved us. Some of you, you don't even know that. What does it matter? What difference does it make, Pastor? He died. But not just that he died. What if he died by an accident? What if he died by poisoning? He could still save you? He had to shed his blood. But John MacArthur's pride, because he's such a brilliant theologian and such a popular speaker, he never changed his book. And up to today, you can get the book of Hebrews and see that he really devalued the blood. Now, does he believe in the blood? I believe he does. But I would have made the thing very simple. Why make an issue of a big thing? Brother, the Christians are concerned that I'm underestimating the blood. I would have said, listen, I believe in the blood. But why leave it that way? Because it would seem as though you have to retract something you've written. Are you so proud you can't retract something? Do we not all make mistakes when we write things? But he never once did it. But I want to say to you this morning that one of the ways that Christ and the cross establishes the law is that the law required the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. And on the cross, Christ shed his blood for us to be forgiven. I was tempted to bypass that verse. Because the reason why I was tempted to bypass it, because I'm saying, you know, how can I make this interesting to the people in the church? To, to them, this doesn't seem to really matter too much. After all, they read it again and again, but it doesn't really matter. But my concern as a pastor really is really, I, I want you to understand the truth. And I want you to, to, that, that you not be misunderstood. When people take a pastor like this and say, okay, what that really means is that Christ's death on the cross gives you the power now to keep the law. How are you going to answer that question? How are you going to respond to that question? But when you begin to understand what Paul means now, it has nothing to do with sanctification, it has to do with justification. Now your picture completely changes in this respect. Now I want to close by saying how important it is to, to argue the way I've argued this morning. I know a lot of you are not theologians, and I don't expect you to be theologians. That's my job as a pastor, to do a lot of reading in this matter. But do you know that there are three different views of the atonement that it's important that you clear your mind. For example, there's something called the accidental theory of atonement. You know what that teaches? It really teaches that what happened there is that Christ started teaching certain principles. The people didn't like what principles were teaching. And it's just an unfortunate accident that they kill him, but they kill him. But it has no meaning. His death is just his death on the ordinary man. Now, can you believe that theologians will come up with a theory like that? Do you believe that men that are teaching pastors in seminaries would teach a theory like that? But that's what the liberals teach. In many theological seminaries all over America. It was an accident. It had no purpose. They don't believe in the atonement. They don't believe in blood. They hate the blood. There's another theory called the, the martyr theory of the atonement. You know what that teaches? What happened that Christ held to his principles. And the people didn't like the principles he was teaching. But he held to his principles and died for his principles. So the, what this is, death teaches you that you must hold to your principles. It must have a moral influence. You don't give it your principles. If you have to die, that's the meaning of the cross. Again, that is thought in theological seminary. It's called the moral theory. But there's one little theory that I think is very ridiculous. It's the, the, the moral theory. There's something called the moral theory. The moral influence theory. And they said, you know what, what Christ is like a missionary who goes into a, a, a leper colony. 
And what happens, he spends his whole life caring for the lepers and he contracts leprosy and he dies. So what Christ's death is about is that the same way when he died, you become sympathetic towards him because he died caring for people. The cross is to make you sympathetic towards him because he died for you. <laughs> now you, you think about that. Theological seminaries. So when you say to yourself, Pastor, I don't see the point of what you're making. Simply because you don't really understand what's going on in the religious world. See? And how the cross of Christ and the death and his blood is spurned upon and disregarded. Look, I am truly grateful, and I think you should be, for the cross of Christ and what he did for us on that cross. It's important for us to understand that any interpretation of the salvation of God, any interpretation that doesn't see its linkage with the importance of the law in the economy of God is a false interpretation and is not the correct interpretation. See? As a Christian, you need to be aware of that. Now you understand what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Galatians, chapter 6 and verse 14. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. He understood the significance and the meaning of the cross. And Paul said, let men boast about what they have or what they don't have. But I'll tell you one thing, I'll boast in Christ, see, and Christ alone. See. Let's pray. Father, we ask you this morning to take your word and uh, help believers to absorb the, few, the, the, the meaning of it and the impact of it. Lord, we are not under the law as a means of living. We walk by faith and we live in the power of the Holy Spirit. But we dare not, dare not completely obliterate the law and abandon the law. It even has a purpose in this time of grace. Show us our sin. Awaken our guilt. And silence the man that boasts about his goodness and his uprightness. And ultimately, it is designed to lead us to that point of total, complete, personal exhaustion. Of helplessness. And then it points us to Christ as our schoolmaster. Would you strengthen our faith? Would you ground us in your word? Would you help us to know your word in such a way that we can be able to teach it properly and adequately and sufficiently and that we do credit to the teaching of scripture? Thank you for the glory of the cross, the magnitude of the cross. Lord, we can never and should ever grow weary of understanding what the cross entailed and what was done for us there. May you now take your word and use it to encourage the believer, to strengthen the believer, to inform the believer's mind. But above all, to give the believer a reason to answer those who hold contrary views and opinions. And who distort and twist and misuse scripture out of context. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for our salvation. May we thrive on serving you and living for you. And we keep you foremost in our minds. And may the cross become our center and our circumference. May it become everything to us. May it be the place where we find confidence, but it may also be the place where we find our identity and where we find our glory and our praise. Help your people, O oh Lord, 
to value your word and value scripture and value the cross. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy begins our study of Romans chapter 4. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street, in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.